but before this, I worked as a training and operations director at Chick-fil-A for also about four years. Um, and it was so much fun. Um, it came with a lot of stress, but also um, I got to go to different like places and states and like help open Chick-fil-A's. It was really fun. Um, and I also made a like pretty decent paycheck. Not the brag, Kingdom of heaven is so 
kingdom of heaven is a heart posture. Hmm, what could that mean? Glad you asked. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so the message we're studying tonight is actually not a parable. It's considered a parabolic illustration um, because it isn't a story that Jesus uses uh, to help us understand the kingdom better, but it's an in-the-moment interaction with someone. Someone meets Jesus on the road and is like, well, we'll talk about what he says in a second. And so it's a parabolic illustration to help us better understand the kingdom. And so as we study the passage tonight, we'll answer some questions of, does Jesus actually say that the rich cannot enter the kingdom? Like, is that what he's actually saying? Um, questions like, do I still get to enjoy life if I choose to follow Jesus? And what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is a heart posture? And so if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me um, to Matthew 19, we'll read verses 16 through 26. Also, if you need a Bible, we have some of those. So if anybody needs a Bible, you can just raise your hands. Okay, cool. I don't know their Bible. We're prepared. Um, and so yeah, Matthew chapter 19, we'll start in verse 16. And before that, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. Um, so Jesus, we just once again thank you for tonight. God, we thank you um, for your word. God, we thank you that um, you desire us you desire us to grow closer to you and to know you better and to uh, know what the kingdom of heaven is like and what it can be like here on earth. So God, I just pray that you would help our hearts to be open to you, Jesus, um, and help us to just hear what you, have, you would have to say to each of us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. And so Matthew 19 and verse 16, it says, Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So this young man seems to have it all, right? He is young. He is moral, right? He's, he's kept the commandments. He's spiritually earnest. And he is wealthy. Like, he, he has everything. Any, everything he could imagine, he has it. And he's also known um, in other passages as the rich young ruler or the rich young fool. So that's tough, right? And so I think that there are two things necessary to recognize about this man. The first is, is that this man is seeking after righteousness. His desire is to do good, right? He's been faithful to keep all the commandments, the big ten, if you will. And he's morally good. But that doesn't seem to be enough for him. Something is still missing. Even though his desire for good is there, something is missing. And he's done all of the right things. He's done what he can do to ensure that he will inherit eternal life. But he recognizes there's still something missing. There's a void in his life. Whatever he's doing just doesn't seem to be enough. 
And so in very good intention, he asks Jesus what more he can do to receive eternal life. He says, tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it. And so this man is seeking after righteousness, and he's also very wealthy. There was a common Jewish assumption that wealth is a sign of God's blessing and his reward for faithful service. And so in the eyes of this man's community, he is doing everything right. And he is clearly on top. Like, if anyone's going to get into heaven, it's this man. Like, he's got it, right? But Jesus says that he, he's like, there's so much more to it than just being wealthy. And so in verse 23, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says here that wealth is an impediment, if you will, for salvation, he's not telling the man or the crowd around them that rich people cannot enter into the kingdom or that they aren't welcome. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's undermining a foundational part of their religious worldview, right? Because again, in the eyes of this man's community, and even in the eyes of this man, he's like, I'm wealthy, I'm morally good, like, I got it, I, I'm making it. And so he has it all, and still it isn't enough. He still isn't satisfied. So it's the right idea by going to Jesus, but in his question, we see that he doesn't necessarily want to follow Jesus. He wants eternal life. Like, that's the, the heart of his desire. He's like, how can I inherit eternal life? So that hopefully he will be satisfied. And so Jesus tells him to go, sell everything he has, and give to the poor. And the young man is sad, right? And that math checks out, right? Like, if Jesus told you, like, if you woke up from a dream and Jesus, like, came to you in a vision or something, and he's like, go and sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, and then come follow me, and then you can have eternal life. That would, for some of us, that would be a little bit sad, right? You're like, wait, where am I going to live? Like, what am I going to sleep on? Right? All of these questions. So the checks out that he's a little sad. Um, this man has also clearly worked hard to become wealthy at such a young age. He had it all. So he goes away sad because of all he had accomplished and all that he created for himself. And Jesus says, go and give this to the poor. And this passage doesn't say that this man was guilty of oppressing the poor. And so Jesus' point here is that his heart posture, this young man's heart posture, his attitude towards his wealth and his spirituality was not necessarily good. It wasn't in the right place. And so Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, or if you want to be complete or mature, to sell all your possessions and give to the poor and who have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. He tests this man's heart posture, the reason behind him wanting eternal life. And so the kingdom of heaven, we see, it demands us not to just be a certain way on the outside, but to check the intentions of our hearts, to check our heart's posture to see if it is pure and humble and obedient to see if we're just desiring eternal life or maybe a ticket to heaven or if we truly just want more of Jesus. If we truly desire to know God and in turn uh, to, to love God and to love those around us. And so this rich young man had all of the head knowledge, all of the outward appearances that would check the box that this man was religiously stopped. But Jesus takes it a step further and asked him to check his heart posture. 
Jesus sees the outward, and he's like, yeah, that's good. But that's not all there is to following Jesus. That's not all there is to the kingdom of heaven. It's not just boxes to check or behaviors to modify. It's about our heart posture. So the question to ask when you're trying to figure out, like, what is my heart passion? Like, what does that mean? Questions are, what are the true desires of my heart? Right? What drives me to do the things that I do? Do my actions and thoughts and desires reflect the heart of God? So this idea of renouncing our possessions for the kingdom of heaven is not that we can't have anything or live in a house that we own or plan for our future financially or buy nice things. That's not at all what it means. Rather, it's about our heart posture. Are you you giving generously when it comes to your finances and time? Do you see your possessions as gifts from the Lord to be used for the kingdom? Or are you uh, stingy with them and unwilling to give out of abundance or out of generosity? Are your possessions secondary to the kingdom of God? And so Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And um, Jesus uses this illustration as the camel would have been um, the largest living animal in Palestine at that time that that they would have known of. Um, And it's also a parallel of the rabbinic saying that speaks of an elephant, which was the largest animal known in Mesopotamia at the time. So a lot of the, the crowd would have understand that like camel going through the eye of the needle, or the elephant going through an eye of the needle, but then Jesus brings it to the culture around him and helps them understand it in their culture, right, in their eyes. And so Jesus is like, it's going to be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom. And all of the audience would be like, wait, that's impossible. Like, there's no way that that can happen, right? And so what Jesus isn't saying is that no rich person can get into the kingdom of heaven, right? How do we know that? How do we come to that conclusion? Um, Think of King David. He had an abundance of wealth. He was so rich, and he definitely made it into the kingdom, right? Or think of Abraham. He was so wealthy, and he definitely made it into the kingdom, right? And so N.T. Wright puts it like this. The patriarchal narratives thus portray the righteous rich as those who receive God's blessing and participate in God's mission of blessing others. Given that this, Abraham, is the first substantial appearance of wealth in the Bible, it's important to note that it's set in a very wholesome light in companionship with covenant, blessing, obedience, and mission. So uh, Abraham was undoubtedly wealthy. Scripture makes that very clear. But he used his wealth to bless others and to participate in God's mission of world domination. His heart posture was one of generosity and humility and obedience. So Abraham was generous in spite of his wealth. But given this, Jesus says that it's still hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. So why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? I believe it's because the more that we have, the more that we desire, right? The more that we um, feed ourselves, the more of that we desire. And so this rich young man had everything, and it still wasn't enough. There was still a void inside of him that he was trying to fill, but the reality was that only God could fill this void. It's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom because more often than not, 
the more someone has, the easier it is to focus on things of this world, to focus on those things and getting more of them, to focus on the temporary. Makes me think of Elon Musk or Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, right? Like these men are so rich. Like they have so much money. Like it makes me kind of want to throw up. It's crazy how much money they have. And they're still going for it, right? Like they haven't, like they haven't retired yet. They haven't, you know, they're still going for it. Because the more that they have, the more that they desire. And so just like with the rich young man, he had everything he could have wanted, but yet one thing was lacking. Um, an author from the C.S. Lewis Institute writes this about desire. Lost people, or people who don't yet know Jesus, lost people typically experience this void as a vague sense that something is missing, that there's more to life than what they have found so far. This leads to a restlessness in the soul, a thirst, a longing, a desire for the undefinable something that is missing. In an attempt to find it, people stumble and grope in spiritual darkness, pursuing substitutes, which they may or may not connect with God. In ancient Israel, stone and wooden images representing nature gods were common. Today, those substitutes could be meaning or purpose or success, or power, prosperity, career, possessions, pleasure, fame, peace, security, and happiness. And so we all have these things that strive to to take first place in our hearts. I'm going to say that again. We all have things that that are striving to take first place in our hearts. Right? Some of those things could mean social media, the latest shoes or clothes, maybe giving every spare minute to binging TV shows or playing video games. Maybe it could be money, right? Picking up every shit that's available just to get the bigger paycheck, only thinking about, like, when is my next paycheck coming? How can I get more? But scripture tells us in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, it says, Come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. The prophet Isaiah calls to all who can hear, to everyone who thirsts and hunger and is hungry. And this is a spiritual thirst or a spiritual hunger. He says to come and receive this gift of grace that is salvation. Isaiah says, delight in that which truly satisfies, and that alone. Spurgeon expounds upon this passage and says, You are not permitted to drink freely of water and then to purchase wine. You're not invited to come and eat freely that which is good and then to spend your labor for that which is not. No, the richest dainties of God's house are as free as the bread he gives to hungry souls. And so in other words, like we can't have both. We can't give into our temporary desires and still claim Jesus as a way out or a get to heaven free card, right? We can't Um, do whatever we want to on the weekends or weeknights and just say, it's okay, I'm forgiven, there's grace for that. 
We can't give into our sexual desires time and time again and still use Jesus as our credit to eternity. We can't just gossip about our friends or cheat on our tests or look at things that we shouldn't be looking at or live two different lives and then just say, it's okay though, I'm not perfect. And there's grace for that. Because yes, there is grace for that. And grace is given freely, right? There's absolutely nothing that we could do to earn it. But our heart posture matters. Right? There is grace. And yes, the kingdom is not about behavior modifications. But when we accept Jesus, when we allow our lives to be truly transformed by him, we are not the same person. Right? Everything changes and we become renewed people. As we spend time with Jesus, our thoughts and our actions and our desires change. And so think of it like a gift, because that's what it is, right? Imagine it's your mother's birthday, and you find the best gift that you could ever find. Like, your mom's going to love this. It's going to be the gift of all gifts. And you spend all of your money on it, and maybe you even, like, get a credit card and, you know, put some of it on that because you just don't have enough, and she's just that worth it to you. You're so excited to give it to her, and so you wrap it up all nicely, and you give it to her, and she takes it and looks at it, and she's so excited, and she enthusiastically says, thank you so much, like, I can't believe you thought of me, this is wonderful. And she takes the skin, still wrapped, and sets it on the counter, and she doesn't open it, and she doesn't care to see what's inside. That's so tough, right? You'd be like, uh, is, is this a joke? Like, are, are we waiting, right? Like, what's going on? And so you see it sitting on the counter for weeks and months, and every time you walk past the counter in the kitchen and you see that, uh, that still-wrapped gift, you're like, man, is she ever going to open this? Occasionally you see her looking at this gift and maybe like touching it or admiring it and getting really joyful, and you're like, is this finally it? And she just doesn't open the gift. She doesn't take the time to truly experience the joy of opening it. And I think that that's what it's like to know Jesus as our Savior, to, to be like, yes, Jesus has saved me, this is great, but not to know him as our Lord. Right? To use Jesus as a get-to-heaven-free ticket, but we never actually truly experience the lasting joy that comes from receiving the gift, from truly experiencing the gift. And so Isaiah the prophet tells us that the kingdom is for everyone. The kingdom is the most inclusive. It's for everyone who thirsts, everyone who deeply desires to lay down their lives and desires to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to this rich young man. Right? If our hearts are set on temporary things, our desires will only be temporarily satisfied. But if our hearts are set on eternity, on eternal things, our desires will be permanently satisfied. What a gift, right? And so the kingdom of heaven can't be bought. The price of the kingdom is our lives. And so the question is, are we willing to give everything for the kingdom of God? Trusting that it truly will be the adventure of a lifetime. Trusting that treasure in heaven is so much more valuable than treasure on earth. The rich young man wanted to do something to have more eternal, to have eternal life, but that's not what it's all about. We can't just check the box and say, "Been there, done that," and receive eternal life or or take it to heaven. Right? It's about giving ourselves for the kingdom. It's about transformation. 
Okay, so much more than the temporary things, right? The kingdom is eternal. And if the kingdom is eternal, and we're seeking eternity, then we have to be people of eternity. People who desire eternal things. People who have our hearts set on eternity. And we have to be willing to count the cost and say yes to Jesus. Say, Jesus is worth me giving up all of this for. And I will say, the giving up everything for the kingdom is not necessarily synonymous. I don't think it's actually synonymous at all. Um, with, I can't have nice things, or I can't have fun by any means, right? Like Abby just shared, like, Beach Week, coming into this Christian community, going to the beach with, like, her friends, right? Like, that was the time of the summer, right? So giving up everything for the kingdom is not synonymous with, I can't have nice things, or I can't have fun. It's saying that if Jesus asks me to give these things up for the kingdom, I've already made the decision that it's absolutely worth it. Because my mind and my heart is set on eternity. Right? I think of the disciples. When Jesus calls them, he doesn't tell them, go, sell everything that you own, give up everything, come follow me. He just says, come follow me. They gave up their jobs for Jesus. They did spend less time with their families. They gave up comfort for not always knowing where they were going to sleep. But their hearts and their needs, their needs were always provided for. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that they went on the adventure of a lifetime. And so scripture tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We can read about and hear about how good Jesus is, but it isn't until we truly experience how good Jesus is for our own selves, that we can say, yes, Jesus is so good and so worth it. And so kind of going back to my story, as I continue to seek the Lord for what he'd have me to do with the rest of my life, it was a true wrestle. There were a lot of times that I counted the cost and I was like, it feels like it'll be worth it, but I just, I'm not sure yet. And so week after week, there was at least one service, whether it was like Monday Night Live or a church service or a small group that I was in, um, where God made it abundantly clear that this vocational ministry was what he had for me. And so about a month later, a month of counting the costs to respond to Jesus' call on my life to make disciples who make disciples, I finally realized that everything I had was by the grace of God and that everything I would continue to have would be by the grace of God, right? And so everything I had was by the grace of God. And so after counting the cost, it felt like the only obvious decision was to be obedient to him and just say, yes, sounds great. The first clearly outweighed the cons. Be obedient to Jesus and have the time of my life while doing it, or be disobedient and regret it later, um, live with that guilt for a while, and eventually probably be obedient a few months or years or however long later. And let me tell you, it has truly been the best decision of my life to be obedient to Jesus. Um, last fall, before the uh, semester started, we were playing mini golf and getting ice cream with our core group leaders, and I just like looked at Hunter or someone and I was like, this is our job. Like, this is, like, I'm getting paid to play mini golf with people and get ice cream, right? Like, how wild is that? Right? We went hiking um, through a national park in Utah with students over break a few years ago. Some of you are going to be doing that here in a couple weeks. And, um, and I, think, I think it was Josh, and it was before I started ministry, and I was like, he was like, 
this is about to be your job. And I was like, yes, I, this is great. I would much rather give up my like nine hours a day job to go hike in a national park with a bunch of friends or get ice cream with a bunch of friends. You know what I mean? I get to get coffee with some of you and talk about our lives together and our spiritual journeys together, and that's my job. I get to have people over in my house to play Mario Kart and play games and make charcuterie boards or make bread eventually. I'm sure we'll do it sometime. Um, and this is my job. Hunter and I just went to Syracuse, New York this past weekend, and I got to actually enjoy the snow. I love the snow and the cold so much, so this season has been a little tough for me. Um, but we got to actually enjoy it. the snow. We prayer walked a new campus. We met some new people. And I was like, this is my job. This is so fun. Uh, this is my job. I get to have the most fulfilling career and the time of my life doing it. And when I took the time, when I counted the cost, when the Lord was asking me to leave Chick-fil-A, none of that ever crossed my mind. I had no idea that this would be so fun or could be so fun. And I believe that when we truly take the time to count the cost, with our heart posture being one that is truly open and flexible, I'm convinced that we'll all come to the realization that Jesus is so worth it. And so in verse 25, we'll keep reading. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Right? Jesus is like, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of the needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom. And the disciples are like, yeah, that's impossible. So like, who then can be saved? So Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So Jesus illustrates the kingdom and the disciples' reactions aren't to be expected. They're like, who, this is impossible what you just said. How does this make any sense? Who can be saved? And for the disciples, the religious worldview was follow the law and be good, moral, be a good, moral human being. And the worldview was still being reshaped by Jesus. And so Jesus tells them, with man, salvation is actually impossible. Like, there's nothing that you could do to, to earn this salvation, to receive this, right? With God, all things are possible. Jesus' final comment here is um, when he says, that many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This final comment is believed by most scholars that Jesus was actually rebutting Peter's remark of, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Jesus is saying, even though you've already left things behind for me, you were one of the first people to follow me. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're all set, that the work is done. He says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Right? We see that um, Judas betrays Jesus for silver, for money, eventually. And Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. 
times before Jesus is crucified, right? One of his, two of his followers betray him, and eventually uh, Peter ends up redeeming this by declaring his love for Jesus three times. Um, but we see that just because they made that first initial decision to follow Jesus, they gave up those three years to go on the adventure of a lifetime. It wasn't just about that initial decision. It was the continuous transformation of their heart and of their lives. So we see that just because they've given everything for the sake of the gospel, there's still room to choose the world over Jesus, to choose um, our other or past desires over Jesus. So just because we say yes to Jesus early, it doesn't mean that we're set for the rest of our lives um, and can do whatever we want to. We must be intentional to stay the course, to keep our heart postures as ones of humility and obedience and childlikeness before the Lord. And let me tell you, it is truly so worth it. We talked about that two weeks ago, but when our heart postures are ones of openness and humility before the Lord, it is truly worth it. What we give up here and now for the kingdom is going to be dust compared to what we'll receive in return. And life with Jesus is so much more fun, so much fuller, and so much more joyful than when it is without him. And so Rachel, you can go ahead and come up as we get ready to go into a time of response. And so, uh, just, yeah, I think there are a few questions to think about as we come into this time of response. I think that we have to be um, willing to taste and see that the Lord is good, willing to truly experience this fullness of life. Jesus says in John 10, I have come so that you may, may have life and have it more abundantly. And so as we respond tonight, just some questions to consider in this time of response and to um, reflect on what our heart is, right? So the first is, is your heart posture one of humility and obedience? Are you willing to give everything up for the kingdom? Are you willing to ask Holy Spirit to take your desires and to make them like Jesus? So is your heart posture one of humility and obedience? And the second is, what about your heart posture is holding you back from the adventure of a lifetime? Right? If your heart posture is not yet one of humility and obedience, what about your heart posture is holding you back from the adventure of a lifetime? Is it maybe pride? Thoughts of, I'm okay without Jesus. Or I could have so much fun without this. Or maybe it's, I can have both. I can do whatever I want and inherit eternal life. Or make it in the kingdom. Is it disobedience or fear? Fear that Jesus is going to ask you to do something that you'll hate? Or disobedience because you don't want to give up blank, don't want to give up something. And so as we take a few minutes to just reflect and, and ask the Holy Spirit to show us kind of where our heart posture is in all of this or what might be holding us back, um, we can all just close our eyes for those few minutes. Once again, Jesus promises fullness of life to those who want to receive it. All of God's promises are yes and amen. So following Jesus is the adventure of a lifetime, and it's yours for the taking. And so as we take a few moments just to consider what our heart, heart posture is like, 
we just ask the Holy Spirit to um, help us just be aware and to see things clearly.